welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Rebecca Lawrence and this is Voices. In this set of interviews, I will be focusing on issues of inclusion, diversity and allyship through intimate conversations with wine industry professionals from all over the globe. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps us cover equipment, production and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Rebecca Lawrence. I'm pleased to be in conversation today with Stephanie Biondi, who's joining us from Etna in Sicily. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie, and thank you so much for taking the time to have a conversation with me today. I was hoping you could introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe tell them a little bit about what you do. Okay, right. Well, um, I'm British, as you can hear, but I've been living in Sicily since 91. Met Shiro at the, towards the end of the 90s, and his family have had these vineyards on the foothills of Mount Etna, planted on craters, but they'd virtually been abandoned. So we decided to take it upon ourselves to sort of like this legacy that had been left to him. We decided we needed to replant, really, because it saddened us to see this, uh, you know, these craters with, you know, crumbling terraces with very few vines left, whose um, Chiro's father was actually making wine from the vine. And, but just selling it on Sunday mornings, selling it sfuso. Chiro is actually grandfather and great uncle. They were actually uh, producing wine at the turn of the century and winning prizes at Lyon and Paris. But then that all went into, into decline after the, the Second World War. But Chiro's father, you know, he continued making wine. But we realized that, well, the wine he was making was fairly done in a very artisan way. And we felt we could, um, well, try and sort of improve on that. But the main objective, as I said, was to replant the vineyards because they were so beautiful. And, and so obviously it was uh, the, the vineyards were in their full sort of... Uh, uh, you know, they were producing at their full potential then, but so being abandoned after the Second World War. And this is when we decided to start and to embark on this uh, adventure to restore the vineyards, making a little bit of wine along the way in order to pay for the, the planting and the restoration of the vineyards, let's say. So now here we are a little bit further along the line. We started off with producing about 5,000 bottles in 99, and now we're producing about 250,000 and uh, with about seven hectares. So it's just been, you know, increasing the production slowly, slowly along the way, restoring the vineyards, increasing the production um, until where we've got today. And that's really a little bit of the background of what we're doing now. So, of course, I also have to ask you to rewind a little bit more because because obviously, as you said, you're you're British, but now living in Italy. But I understand you also spent your childhood in Nigeria. So before we do a bit more of a deep dive into the kind of wines, tell us a little bit about you know how you came to be in Sicily. Like what was the what was the journey from from UK to Nigeria to Sicily? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, okay. Well, actually, I was actually brought up in in Nigeria. My parents went in the early 50s to Nigeria. So whilst there, I would, we would actually get, my first introduction to wine was actually was in Nigeria, funnily enough, because we would go on holidays to Cameroon across the border, which was French territory. My parents used to fill the car with demijons of, of, uh, of wine and then go back to Nigeria. And I mean, they've tried to force me to drink it, but it was actually, I think even my palate then, I realised it was actually, it obviously oxidised, it had been, you know, temperatures of, you know, sort of 40 degrees, so it was really awful. But my parents, you know, they, they carried on drinking it. Then we would have holidays, it was hilarious. But then then we'd go on holidays. Um, when my parents came back from Nigeria on leave during the summer, we'd go on holidays to Italy. Uh, they had a place in Ibiza. Uh, my mother used to, I remember Asti Spumante, and it was just, oh, awful. <laughs> 
And then we sent to boarding school when I was nine, but my parents had a house in Suffolk. So after having left school, I moved to Suffolk. And that was at the end of the 70s when they had the wine bar boom. And, and I remember I used to go to this wine bar called the Butts or the Corkscrew or something. And the only wine you could get was this German, like Blue Nun. And that too was undrinkable. It was awful. So I would be drinking beer. But then next step with my wine um, sort of education, as it were, I had a close friend, Barbara, who was going out with this guy, a hotelier who had like, um, it was like a a lovely um, country house hotel and she couldn't drive. So she would ask me to take her to the hotel in the evenings where she would be invited for dinner. I would get invited in to have an aperitivo, which I was introduced then to Sancerre, which I fell in love with. And then Ian, Ian Hatfield, who owned the hotel, would then invite me to stay for dinner. And Barbara, my friend, would be kicking me under the table to go. And I thought, no way, I'm going to stay. So then um, I, we, I was introduced to a lot of the classic Burgundy wines. So I was drinking things like Chateau Margaux, Lafitte, Latour, amazing wines. So this was my sort of introduction to it, thanks to Barbara and thanks to Ian. And then, as I said, my parents had a house in Ibiza. And then holidaying in Ibiza, where, of course, then we were drinking lots of Rioja and lots of Spanish wines, I met some people from Sicily, came to visit in Sicily, came a few times. And then just um, Sicily, have you been? I have, yes. You have. I love it. It's terribly seductive. It really is dangerously seductive. And um, and so I ended up staying. Yes, I followed my heart, not my head, and came. So first visit was at the end of the 80s. And then I moved, I was here in 91, early 90s. And, and then a few, a little bit down the line, I then met uh, Chiro. Yes, uh, I, because it was the awful thing about Sicily is that I used to come back from England with all this energy with all these you know innovative projects I wanted to do like children's playgrounds you know trying to uh, improve you know like getting people to advertise you know now you see lots of advertising roundabouts to improve that but you know I'd go to the Comune and they say no non si può non si può so I was very frustrated and then finally it was great so when I actually met Shiro I was able to channel all this energy I had into um, this uh, this project which was um, fantastic but it was you know a bit challenging initially coming to Sicily but uh, having spent many years in Nigeria I think that that uh, did help you know sort of going with the flow carrying a book in my handbag all the time and uh, yes. <laughs> so obviously you work very closely with your husband in the winery um, I wanted to ask a little bit about like working one-on-one with your partner I know must must be I imagine this must be quite a challenge uh, do you divide the roles equally or are you just accepting the inevitable arguments and going with the flow. Well, our roles, they're fairly, fairly well defined. We've got Manfredi, Chiro's um, nephew, his sister's uh, son, who works in the in actually the cellar. So he takes care of the cellar during the harvest and things. Chiro takes care of a lot of the um, the factura, the invoices and things. He's uh, I tend to concentrate a little bit on the um, the, the incoming, you know, the, the clients, the you know, visitors who want to come. So, the, the, you know, we are fairly, I mean, like when it comes to bottling and the blending, we all sit down tasting together. So it's a little bit, you know, they're fairly well-defined. But this, as you well know, is a pretty male-dominated um, sort of society here, particularly in Sicily. And I do sort of, Shira does make the final decisions. I make lots of suggestions, but it's his, his uh, at the end of the day, his decision, which I, you know, I'm uh, having this responsibility. I don't think I'd want, so I'm rather happy for him to to make a lot of the decisions. I mean, we do, me, me and Manfredi, we do sort of uh, uh, make lots of suggestions and things. But at the end of the day, it's... Uh, I think Cheerio makes uh, 
their decisions. Yeah, because as I said, it's it's this, you know fairly male dominated. The women, I mean, women are very tough here. They really are because not only do they have the traditional roles of like mother looking after the house, but they also work as well. So they really are, and they remind me a lot. Actually, have you read Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt? Yes. Course. Now, there's those Irish ladies that would go down to sort of like queue for mattresses for clothes, and the men would be sort of sticking at home. That, that reminds me very much of that. These Sicilian women, they are very, very, um, yes, very resilient. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. So, uh, yes, so you can say that uh, our roles are fairly defined ish. Yes, I like the defined ish, <laughs> very diplomatic. <laughs> So I want to return to you. You mentioned sort of early on in your wine journey, having been able to taste some of the great wines from Burgundy. And I know this has become a bit of a fascination for you and a little bit adopted in your processing methods. So how do you find this combination of of Burgundian methods, maybe with the indigenous vines and terroir of Etna? How did you put these two things together? Well, this is it was actually inspired by a visit to Burgundy because we were fortunate enough to Robert Camuto, who you probably know, he wrote a book called Palmento. He came a few years ago and became firm friends with. One evening we were having dinner in the vineyard and he came with um, Aubert de Villain and, um, and Kermit Lynch. So as a result of this, Aubert invited us to go to, to Burgundy to visit him and the cellar vineyards, which was absolutely magnificent. This was in 2011, in February. And having uh, tasted his, uh, you know, um, we tasted the Grand, uh, Grand de Chazot, Saint-Louis, and uh, Mont Rocher. And that was the 2001. And we just looked at each other and thought, my God, this is amazing. Then uh, we were very reluctant to sort of ask, you know, sort of uh, for any sort of advice or what we should do. We just sort of listened to, um, uh, you know, we were just in awe, really. So, but then Kermit invited us to, well, he'd actually arranged for us to visit other other winemakers, small winemakers. So we felt more comfortable and able to ask, you know, about the winemaking process and what to do and so forth. And so it's like Paul Fousset, there was a wonderful Robert um, Denogeon. Um, we went, visited him him and his son were there fantastic and we spent ages there and then when we came back Chira said come on let's try and make a little bit of uh, our Mont Rocher de l'Etna <laughs> so we decided to, to start this was in 2011 so the first vintage so what we did instead of planting lots of Chardonnay we thought you know we'd copy the concept uh, not, the, not the form and so we decided to have a few ex- uh, experiment and see what came out so we did just following their suggestions so we would do like a, a, a um, you know having picked the the grapes we left them on their skins for 24 hours low temperature at that time it was very difficult because we didn't have a refrigeration unit so we were using bottles of cold frozen water lowering into into the grapes to try and keep the temperature down very Heath Robinson sort of style and then taking the, the wine into town where the cellar is and and then starting the fermentation in oak the first three years wasn't that great a little bit oxidized because of the transportation and then from the 2015, we got a little bit happy. Then there was the batonnage, how uh, we were doing batonnage once a week. The 2014, we said, well, let's do it every, you know, once every two weeks. So it, we're still at this experimental stage. But the results, we actually, we're really quite sort of pleased with. And, you know, over the years, we've managed to sort of slightly improve. The only concern that we 
now is we're afraid of it evolving too quickly with the batonnage, which I believe in Burgundy as well, they too are finding this. So, um, you know, we're still, it's still work in progress, but we are, this was, as I said, the inspiration behind it and just using the same, you know, same, same grape varieties, but we use it from the top of the vineyard Chianta. And this is the name of the crew, the single vineyard uh, Chianta that we make with the, um, with this method. Because the Utis white, the other white we do is just very um, easy peasy, just uh, fermenting the juice and stainless steel. So two, totally two different styles of wine. And we usually serve this when we do a tasting, uh, we usually serve the Chianta uh, at the end. And it's wonderful to see everybody's faces as they put their nose into the glass. They say, wow, you know, what's, what's, what's this? So it's a very interesting, um, you know, style that we've introduced, as I said, inspired by that wonderful visit. Thanks to Robert. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to hear, and, and particularly with the with the white wine taking this approach, because colleagues of mine who do a lot of blind tasting have often said that when you taste the red wines of Etna against the red wines of Burgundy, that lots of people can get confused. So it's really interesting to see you taking this on, particularly with the white wines. I think that's a really great and exciting project for the winery. Yes, because we, I mean, we the, the wines we make are actually to suit our palate, what we enjoy. And we are actually helped by, initially, I had a consultant that helped us, but the most the important person, I think, who, who put us in the right direction, who shared our same sort of like the, this type of style is Cristiano Garella. I don't know if you um, know Cristiano, he actually, he, he was a young lad. He started working with uh, Sella, Cantina Sella, and he's in Alto Piemonte. He came down, he fell in love with Etna, came down, it was, I think it was 2009 and 10, and he came down, saw some grapes, which we made the wine under his instruction. So he helped us and guided us, like not doing a very long maceration, getting this lovely acidity, this elegance, um, not, you know, and the colour slightly lighter, this sort of style, which we enjoy drinking. And uh, But it was very difficult at the beginning, you know, talking about this style is that particularly with Germany because the German market you know when we'd send samples they said no no because they didn't think it was like Sicilian because there's such a difference as you as you said between Etna and the rest of Sicily and initially people just wanted Nero Davila we'd go to Verona for Italy and everybody say no we don't Nero Davila Nero Davila but over the years um, people have become uh, you know very uh, as you as you said I mean Etna has become very very popular particularly with people who enjoy the, the you know the, the burgundy style this uh, like you know nice elegance acidity and so forth. That actually leads really nicely into my next question, which was going to touch on the fact that, you know, the, the Etna wines, the DOC up in Etna has begun to receive quite a lot of attention from experts and consumers in recent years. And I, I wondered what your view on this was and why you think that these wines have suddenly begun to find an appeal in, in a broader market. Uh, well, I think purely for this, because these characteristics, and people are very, very surprised when they come and they, they discover these wines, uh, you know, these high altitude wines. Um, so, I mean, like Eric Asimov came over because he wanted to explore what was happening on Etna, mainly for the Cadicante, which there's another gentleman who came who actually bought a vineyard here and, and produces in Sonoma. He thinks that Cadicante is going to be one of the best, one of the best white varieties in the world. You know, this guy, Kevin Harvey. So he's become, you know, fell in love with Cadicante. And it's, it's similar because we get these visitors and we've had people from, even from Santorini, we've compared this, you know, with the um, Assetico, uh, you know, the Caricante, you've got, it's got the same similar characteristics. And it's lovely, this age worthiness, because people think a white wine can't, but the Utis white, for example, you know, tasting 2014, going further and further back. And, um, you know, when it's just bottled, you've got this lovely, crispy, crunchy, lemony, uh, this citrusy, this salty, and which then evolves and becomes sort of slightly honeyed, it 
becomes, you know, lots of layers, a little bit more sort of aromatic. So I think, you know, there is a lot of people have recognised this caricante as being uh, one of the um, leading varietals it could be in in uh, in the world. Yes. Uh, You're making me desperately want a glass. <laughs> I, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm dribbling as I'm salivating describing it. It's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's almost lunchtime as we're doing this and I'm just imagining a beautiful glass of caricante. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And also we've got, as I, I mentioned, we've got the caricante minella and also the cataracto. And it's about probably 90% of the caricante, but we've got quite a lot of minella in, in the vineyard as well. So, uh, because I think Benanti, Benanti once, they did a, a minella in purezza, which, uh, which they stopped. But one thing I must say about Etna, when we started, there was this real sense of solidarity, this real sense of sort of camaraderie. And and we'd, we'd often meet together and sort of have dinner here at the vineyards. And um, it was lovely. You know, it really was this sense of, uh, of, of family. Because when we started 99, there's probably about nine other producers on Etna who were bottling. And then now, if you think, um, it, it's about 160 producers now on Etna. So it really has become, which is great because a lot of the vineyards have been abandoned. So you've got people coming in, buying up the vineyards, replanting. So there's been like a renaissance, I think as Andrea Franchetti referred to as the renaissance and also Mark de Grazia, who was the, who came and, and I think uh, flew the flag and sort of with all their marketing teams helped, you know, get focus on Etna, thanks to them as well. And also Benanti, who's one of the, the pioneers, as, as you know, and there's, you know, Marco Nicolossi, Villa, uh, you know, Villa Grande, there's, yes, lots of people to, to thank for this uh, and this, the most important thing, though, is what we try to do is maintain the quality. That's the importance. And, uh, and so this is something that, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to continue. <laughs> it's, been, it's been really nice to, to see the sort of gradual regeneration of the area around Etna. Because as you say, when I first visited, there were still quite a lot of vineyards just completely abandoned. And now you've got such fantastic terroir and such a wonderful microclimate. And also on Etna itself, you have microclimates. Obviously, the north and the south faces are very different, which I think is, for me, one of the things that makes the Etna wines so fascinating and why I think... As you say, one of the things you're doing is doing these kind of single vineyard bottlings. I think this is a really great direction for producers on Etna because it is so specific and does mirror the wines of Burgundy and also Barolo in the sense of having these very particular microclimates and terroir that really are incredibly well reflected in the wines. Yes, because there's a, also when you mentioned about the north and the south, initially people were talking about Etna as a whole. And then then having divided up now into the Contradas, you've got the north and the south. And, and then it was interesting because like everybody said, well, north is best, south. And then when Gaia, when he, Angela Gaia, when he bought her vineyards in the south, the south of Etna, everybody said, oh, the south mustn't be that bad after all if uh, Angela Gaia comes and... <laughs> Yeah. And uh, yes, it's interesting, as you say, I mean, it's so diverse, even here on the south side. And we've got an eruption from 125 BC, which the lava flow, the crater is where the, the vineyards are built on the, the spent crater. But the lava flow goes down to Fabio Cosentino. He's got a vineyard, Via Grande. So he's actually vineyards are planted on our the, the lava from our eruptions that were and there is a, and there's like and there's a thread you can see that there's a similarity but as you say quite rightly I mean it really is so diverse hence we're not in competition with each other they really are from vineyard to vineyard you know Cisano Fori and San Nicolò are two separate eruptions and the vine you know where you should taste the wine side by side some people say well is the vinification different is the, the grapes different but it's just as you say because of the terroir it's just the the soil I often wonder if this is also where this sense of community that you talk about comes from, because like you say, you're not in competition with each other. You're just showing what 
each of the different plots can do. And I really got a sense of the kind of community spirit of winemakers and every winery I visit they you know they would say oh have you been to this winery have you been in, have you seen what these guys are doing they were just wanted to share the whole of Etna Yes, it's an amazing collaboration, uh, you know, particularly amongst the, you know, the early producers. And we would send people, as you say, we'd ring up and I'd ring, you know, Giuseppe Russo, we'd ring uh, Alberto, we'd ring Alicia Bonacorti, various people, you know, say, oh, yes, we've got some people here. No, no, great, great. Yes, it's fantastic. Yes, I, I love it. So thinking about the future, obviously, it's been a quite a challenging couple of years for everyone. But let's let's look ahead with positivity. And I wondered what you think the future is for maybe Etna, but also particularly for, for what you're doing. You said at the top, we were talking that you've just started planting some new vines. So tell us a little bit about what's what's happening for you in the next few years. Well, we've, uh, as I said, we've uh, purchased another little bit of San Nicolas. So the production of San Nicolas, which is a very, very popular, um, it's one of the most popular crews, and which is actually usually sold out before it's even bottled. You know, we have to allocate it. So we're going to be able to increase that production. Then I think we're not going to be, we, we're purchasing another little piece of land, but I think we want to in- increase the production to about 30,000 bottles. And that's it. Because we've got me, Cheer, as I said, and Manfredi. My, our son, Alex, is actually in Toronto working within the, the, the wine business, doing these sort of hospitality and so forth. But he actually came back just before COVID with the, with the idea to, to help us uh, with the incoming and with the visitors. But then obviously that all fell, <laughs> that stopped. So he's actually gone back to Toronto. But this is the thing, when you talk about the future of Sicily as well, where, where I was in New York once um, and there was a, an Italian chap there, we were doing a tasting, and he said, there's so many people leaving Italy to go abroad you know who is left in Italy to, to, to take you know the country forward because all the brilliant people are leaving and I actually um, teach English and uh, a lot of the parents are investing a lot in their children in order for them to go abroad to further their education and the and hopefully they will actually you know come back because this is this is a problem but uh, you know with the, the government and all the, the, the problems at the moment but but as, as we mentioned earlier that Sicilians are very resilient and we live on a volcano we have tremors but, um, you know, at the end of the day, they are very, you know, resilient and they do manage to overcome any obstacles, any problems that are thrown their way. So uh, and they, and they've managed to reinvent themselves in wonderful ways during this period. I mean, our sales have been, we sold nothing from March until sort of actually September. As I said, very few visitors. Oh, in the, in the summer, we had a lot, of, uh, a lot of visitors, but then, of course, that went down again. So it's been a, a difficult time, but I think it can only get better. Yes, things can only get better, can't they? Well, I really look forward to seeing how the new the new plot develops and the wines that come out of it. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me on the Italian Wine Podcast today. Where can our listeners find you and the wines online or on social media? Well, we've got the website, lebignobiondi.it, on the website, but also um, we've got social media. Chiro is a great photographer. So he's, he's, he's um, on Instagram as Chiro Bion, and I'm on Instagram as Steph Biondi. So, um, there's, you know, we're very sort of active, and there's lots of photographs of, you know, the vines, the vineyards, wine, food, the dogs, and uh, so uh, they can find us there. Okay. Stephanie, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. It's wonderful talking to you. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. 
If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin. Cin cin.